Bitcoiners, welcome back to FedWatch. It's CK sitting across from Ansel, and we had a little bit of a different show today. I hosted a panel, Ansel was a member on the panel, and we had Greg Foss and Aaron Segal. Aaron came to us with this idea of talking about centralization versus decentralization and talking about how China and the US were kind of like dual powers in centralizing and Bitcoin was the only thing that was on the side of decentralization. This was a very wide-ranging conversation. All the panelists kind of hit on their points, interacted with each other, tried to hit on this really deep and wide-ranging conversation but I really had a great time listening to it. I thought some amazing points were made. I'm gonna definitely gonna listen to it a couple more times after we release it. But Ansel, you were on the panel and you got a witness firsthand kind of hashing this subject out. What is your take? Well, we stepped into it using Aaron's five axioms of decentralization versus centralization. And I thought it was a good way to get deeper into the subject. We didn't 100% agree and we disagreed on some major points, but nothing significant. We all agreed in the end that Bitcoin, like you said, is a decentralizing force. And there is this growing concern in the world or feeling in the world of a centralization of power in some of these nation states. So I thought it was a fascinating discussion and a great way to step through it. All right, guys, this is a long podcast, so I don't think we need to spend too much time on the intro. So I'm just going to cut this one off and send it right into the interview. Enjoy this pod with myself, Ansel, Aaron, and Greg Foss. Peace. Bitcoiners, I am super excited to bring a really heavy hitting conversation with a really heavy hitting panel. I'm sitting across from Greg Foss, from Aaron Segal, and from my co-host Ansel Lindner. And we're here to talk about the future and how Bitcoin as a decentralized money and an open source community is going to rub up against the centralizing powers that governments across the globe, West or East, are taking on. Uh, We're really going to look into China and the US in particular. This is a conversation that we're not going to cover everything on. You know, this is a huge conversation. We could talk about this for five hours, for five days, but we're going to try to focus on more or less an introduction to, you know, kind of these concepts of the people versus these totalitarian overreaching states and kind of go from there. So I want to jump and go straight to Aaron Segal, who really introduced this idea to me in particular in this framing and suggested this conversation. So Aaron, why don't you kind of introduce the audience to kind of your idea? Yeah. So first of all, thanks for for being on. I'm excited to have this conversation, especially like you said, with such an amazing panel. The way this all came about, at least from my perspective, was I basically started a piece. I took a, a simple statement from Balaji, who is actually talking about this notion of an investor class, like kind of a new formation of a, of a class of mass investors. You know, we had the agrarian society, we had the proletariat society and post-industrial revolution. Now we have this investor class. And I thought that, that was a really interesting concept to throw out there. And so I, I kind of went down and I thought I was just going to be writing a simple piece or an essay delving into that. And as I started to think about that more and think about how true that actually is and just how ubiquitous this idea 
of creating a, a socialization of, of capital markets through incentivizing mass investment, you know, mass investment in risky assets more particularly, and how that propagates and creates more centralization. And then once I kind of started thinking of it in that way, that it's actually a forcing function of centralization in a way for our quote unquote democratic system that we tend to believe is not totalitarian. And that's why I don't like using that word totalitarian versus individual, because there's a lot of nuance here. There's a lot of ways to centralize. There's a lot of systems that can be centralized. It doesn't have to be an empire or feudal or a monarchy or a communist regime. It can happen in a democracy. It can happen in a capitalist system. And I think that is something that we are seeing right before our eyes. And it has accelerated. It's actually been a process that's probably been going on slowly and gradually since World War II, at least, but has really accelerated, of course, in the 1970s after Nixon took us off the gold standard. And that is obviously a timely marker given that we had the 50th anniversary of that yesterday. But of course, has, has accelerated in recent years. I would say really started to accelerate in the 1980s with financial deregulation. And then in the 1990s with even more of that. I have some slides prepared that can show all of that. But basically, to just frame this conversation, that's how I got engaged with this notion of centralization versus decentralization from like a historic human perspective. And then where Bitcoin fits into that as this obvious mechanism for decentralization, unlike what we have ever seen before. And I think it's interesting that you have these driving forces of centralization that are extremely powerful at the moment, coinciding with this driving force of decentralization, again, unlike what we have seen before. So I kind of came across five axioms that are the way I think about the world and the way I think about how this likely will progress. The first axiom or rule or principle, whatever you want to call it, is that decentralization and centralization are the driving forces of history. They're essentially two sides of the same coin. One leads to the other. They are kind of a dance of opposing forces, and they don't necessarily have to contradict each other. And we can talk about what that means in more detail. Axiom number two is that, like I said at the very beginning, centralization can take many forms. It doesn't have to be totalitarian. It doesn't have to be Orwellian, though it tends to get that way eventually, but it never looks that way at first. And that's kind of the danger of it. I mean, no one in Weimar Germany thought that Nazism was going to evolve in the way it did. You know, there were some people I actually came across recently, a really interesting fairy tale that was written in the early 1920s by an Austrian woman who really did predict this was happening and that, and that people were being given these rose-colored glasses so as not to witness that. But the point being is that centralization doesn't necessarily have to be in the way we always tend to think of it here in the West, which is either communist or fascist, totalitarian kind of rule. It can happen in socialist, capitalist kind of systems. And then two is that decentralization also can take many forms. Decentralization is not a political ideology. Decentralization is the lack of certain political institutions that can enforce people to behave and act in a certain way. So that's axiom number two. One thing that really woke me to that idea about democracy is that we tend to think that democracy cannot centralize. You know, that democracy is actually this, this decentralizing institution that gives power to the people 
and it gives especially representative democracy or even direct democracy. And it does, but that is not what prevents centralization. Democracy is just a means of bestowing power. It's bestowing power to someone who is best representative of those people. And it's setting yourself up for the best odds of that. But preventing power with certain limitations is actually what prevents centralization. There's a great quote from Frederick Hayek, who's a well-known Austrian economist in a book he wrote in the 1940s called A Road to Serfdom. I'll read it here. There is no justification for the belief that so long as power is conferred by democratic procedure, it cannot be arbitrary. The contrast suggested by the statement is altogether false. It is not the source, but the limitation of power, which prevents it from being arbitrary. So I know I'm, I'm going off on a tirade here, but I just wanted to set these axioms in place. And then that way, that way like, I'd love to hear Greg's response. I want us to riff on all this, hopefully. But the third axiom that kind of follows from that is that decentralized systems are more stable than centralized systems. It's kind of intuitive when you stop and think about it, because the whole concept of a system that centralizes is that it bestows more power and benefit to a smaller number of people than a large number of people. And eventually that is not sustainable, right? Especially in a world where technology, and we'll get to technology in a second, which is a key part of this entire discussion, technology improvements tend to occur along the lines of communication, communication technologies. And the more that individuals can communicate, and we all know that communication technology propagates exponentially, and the more that these individuals can communicate with one another, the harder it is to maintain that centralized power. I tend to think of decentralization as the, as the steady state, as the natural state. I mean, in all of human history, for 100,000 years, we lived in tribal communities, decentralized states of being before, I guess, you could say the agricultural revolution really caused the first wave of centralization where there was excess surplus property that could be accumulated and accumulated by force. And that's when you first started to see centralization. So the fact that we could exist basically as we are as humans for that long of a period of time says that there's something inherent to that. There's something inherent to decentralization, but there's also something natural about centralization. I mean, people are greedy, people crave power, people will utilize technology to their individual benefit if they can. So that is number four. Technology can be decentralizing or centralizing. I think people this day and age, since most of the innovation that we witness in our generation is communication technology, we tend to believe that technology is always decentralizing, but it can be both. We can talk about a lot of different examples of both. Fiat money is a technology, and that is clearly centralizing. Nuclear technology was kind of both. It was, it was centralizing at first. Whoever had first mover advantage of nuclear fission, of course, that allowed us to have the atom bomb, and the atom bomb created hegemonies, and, and the U.S. and the USSR ended up as the world powers, and that, that was certainly centralizing. But then you have countries like Pakistan that developed the nuclear weapon, and now they're on the world stage and they're a small country. So in a way, it's also decentralizing or at least distributes power in some way to the little guy sometimes. But, you know, the printing press, all communication technologies are always decentralizing. And by the way, that gets back, that point about technology will be important with our conversation about what the hell is going on in China right now and what they're doing to their technology sector. And then number five is just Bitcoin is unique because it is a, as I think everyone in this room and most of the people probably listening can empathize with, it is the most decentralizing technology that 
we can probably fathom so far in human history. I think we would all agree that we haven't really uncovered something that is, is more decentralizing on a global scale than Bitcoin has been. And what's also important is since technology can centralize and decentralize, not only is it the best decentralized tech, but it obsoletes all centralizing technology. It obsoletes the ability to accumulate violence and accumulate property and accumulate asymmetric information. And those are all technologies that tend to lead towards centralizing of power. A great example is the invention of the compass. You wouldn't think the compass was a really important invention, but it was. And it allowed the Europeans and those who had access to this technology to explore and basically expand their empires and colonialist kind of values across the world and attain more resources, attain more property, and of course, do that forcefully and violently. So it was a technology, but it'll, it didn't have to centralize, but it did because people use it in that way. But Bitcoin solves the property rights issue, or at least makes it very, very difficult for centralizing forces to circumvent that. Those are the kind of the axioms. And that's, and that's how I basically got to this conclusion that what we're seeing right now is all these axioms kind of playing out in broad daylight. And I do truly believe that the 21st century is going to be this kind of battle between these dichotomies of centralization and decentralization. I've said a mouthful. I appreciate everyone's patience. So let me stop and let everyone else talk here. Greg, I saw you taking notes. I want to give you the stage. So I wrote them down. Are you sure you want me on this panel? Uh, There's no mathematics involved yet. I wrote five axioms, that's but where, that's the only math I've done. So uh, that's where we that's where you come in. Okay, so, <laughs> so so this is cool because I often say, and I mean this sincerely, I, I should have taken more psychology courses and subjective courses in my undergrad. It would have helped me evaluate the various personalities I've come across. I will say this, I've spoken with Aaron once on the phone and I was blown away by your level of thoughtfulness and thoroughness and going through things. And this is no, uh, this is an exact example of it, you laying out these five axioms, but I'll shift it back up two gears or two things I want to say. You know, a lot of this stuff, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with Jordan Peterson, who's a Canadian prolific writer, but also very, the guy is really, really smart. And, uh, you know, he, he talks about some of these things that, you know, not specific, but I just wanted to give you a shout out that a lot of the things you mentioned sort of remind me of some of the readings I did from Jordan Peterson. And then the other thing is, I was lucky enough to be at Bretton Woods last week. And I will tell you that the world, it's a lot more concerning than I realized. Perhaps it's that I haven't been in the trenches in the US for a while. But boy, oh boy, that was eye opening experience down there. So I'll, I'll hit on some of those points. But yeah, 100%. I like this. I like your fifth conclusion, you know, or your fifth axiom in particular, that Bitcoin is a technology that is unique. Uh, It has the unique ability to solve some very, very disturbing problems. And I'm open for conversation. So thanks for having me. And yeah, let's get at it. Cool. Ansel, I know you've been thinking about this for the past few days as we've been kind of like preparing for the show. But I guess what are your reflections on kind of like the concept in general, as well as the points that Aaron made. Yeah, I think put together all in five axioms, it seems like a process, right? And his first point about the decentralization versus centralization being a driving force of history, it reminded me of the book I read recently called The Great Leveler. It's by Walter 
Scheidel, I believe. It's really good. It goes through that exact process, you know, that you have income inequality, you have wealth inequality that gets to a certain percentage. And you can even look at the Gini coefficients of all these countries. And when the Gini coefficient hits a certain height, there's usually some sort of leveling event. And that's usually not peaceful. It's usually extremely violent. That can be an interplay between centralization and decentralization. My thought on that, though, is that there are periods where it's logical to want centralization. When the raiders are coming, everyone goes into the keep of the castle, and then you follow the the Lord's orders at that time. So I think that there is some validity to centralizing at certain times. Centralization is a tool, just like decentralization is a tool. The problem is that when you have centralization and fiat money, it becomes extremely hard to get out of that. And so, yeah, I do agree with the end conclusion that Bitcoin is this decentralizing force. I just hope it doesn't end violently like other leveling events. Okay. Well, I think that we can kind of dive into the conversation. Aaron, you were talking a lot about the investor class. I think you're referring to like how the U.S. potentially could be centralized a lot in kind of your opening statement. I want to talk about China in particular because a lot of people already perceive them as a top-down totalitarian state and entity. But let's just spend some time talking about China a little bit and what China centralization looks like and what they're doing. Again, I know that you have some observations around what they're doing against their internet technology. So let's start with you, and then maybe we can go to Ansel and then Greg to react. One thing I just wanted to respond to, to Greg and Ansel, who both you know, made some interesting points just now, was, Greg, I, I would love to hear how you tie in your view of kind of this sovereign credit default swap thesis into all this, because obviously this is, at least today in modern times, this centralization progression is, is really occurring at the nation state level. And in modern times, a nation state is powered by its ability to manifest debt at a reasonable cost of debt. And so I do think that a lot of your views I think you're not giving yourself enough credit. I think they tie in really well to this conversation. So I would love to hear, just as we progress with the conversation, how you would tile that in or how you would kind of try to foot it. And then Ansel, just real quick, I think you made an amazing point just now, because obviously, these, as I laid out these, these axioms, which you know are really more of a mental model, it's more of a way of thinking than rather than some kind of hard and fast rule. It, of course, the connotation is that centralization is evil and decentralization is great. And I think in our current context, you know, where we stand right now, it has that feel to it, of course. And I think a lot of Bitcoiners, again, can empathize with that. But I agree with you wholeheartedly that that's not always the case. And that, of course, human history would not have progressed in so many of the innovations and quality of life improvements and quote unquote progress that we've had as a civilization would not be here at all, obviously, without centralization. So it is definitely a tool and all tools can be abused or used correctly. And I think you made a great point about fiat. And, and that's part of the way I, I try to think about this kind of cyclical nature. You know, and I, I mentioned that decentralization is, is kind of a steady state, whereas centralization tends to breed instability. And I think you hit the nail on your head, which is that it does that, especially in a system of fiat, because fiat can only go in one direction. 
it is essentially a centralized network. You know, one way of thinking about it is that way. And one way of thinking about the treasury market is that it's a way of, of basically creating a captive audience in order to have a fiat system that is currency by de- decree, you need to create artificial demand. You need to create trust and demand for your currency. And in doing so, you need to have a robust capital markets. You need to, of course, attract a lot of capital inflows. And you also need to be, as, as people like Lynn Alden have really done a great job of articulating, you need to be a creditor society. And then because fiat is such a powerful, potent technology, it will be abused by people in that position to centralize. And as a result, you will need more and more debt, and then you get into a debt trap, and then things expand exponentially. And the need for that network demand expands exponentially as well. And that's why it is ultimately so unsustainable. But of course, there have been empires that did not have that degree of network building that centralized and lasted for a long period of time. Though it is important to recall that all centralizing systems do fail. Historically, at least, that's, that's never so happened. So let, let, let's jump into China, right? Because on this show, Ansel and I have generally taken a very bearish China perspective because of those factors of centralization, top-down decision-making, you know, controlling the resources, that kind of behavior. Do you want to kind of dive into your analysis of China a little bit and then pass it back to the other yeah. panelists? Yeah, it's, and, and actually, it's not really my analysis, actually. I've been racking my brain. And so I, I work at a hedge fund, and we're all basically trying to rack our brains, trying to understand what China is doing. I think most of the Western investor community and geopolitical community, for that matter, is, is really confused as to what China has done over the last six months. Because it, in our view, technology companies are the golden goose. Like They are what fuels our economic prosperity. If you take... Amazon, Facebook, Google, Apple, Microsoft, and NVIDIA, which may, may be lesser known to some people, but they're, they're one of the largest semiconductor companies that we have here in the U.S., and they manufacture GPUs, which are used for gaming and, and actually artificial intelligence now as well. And if you take those companies combined, they're almost 45% of the S&P. And what this has to do with China is that imagine if our government decided to just destroy 50% of the market cap value in these companies these companies that provide the meat of the profitability for our equity markets. And our equity markets, getting back to that mass investor class, is what is driving our sustainable trends towards towards wealth creation and making everybody feel happy and satiated currently. So we can't fathom why they would do that. I mean, Alibaba is a company that is run by Jack Ma. And basically around eight, nine months ago, they started, the Chinese government started this process of basically canceling them, you know, as we use in our, the term we would use in our culture. And Ant Financial was a subsidiary that was supposed to go public. It is a decentralized payments platform, but decentralized is a, is a relative term in this context. And then they've gone about doing the same with other internet companies, ride-sharing company, DD. They've done this with their paid for-profit online education sector, their video game sector, which is basically run by a company called Tencent. So they've basically gone about this complete evisceration of a huge part of their quote unquote technology industry. But the difference here, and when I came across a piece written by Noah Smith, who writes some really interesting, thoughtful work, and he basically came up with this thesis that 
if you read between the lines, what they're doing is they're just shifting their resource allocation. I mean, this is a controlled economy. They're capitalists with Chinese characteristics. So they, they try to have capitalism, but they, they definitely propel the resource utilization in certain directions. And what they seem to be doing is eviscerating, like I said, the internet sector, the kind of consumer-facing technology that we covet so much in this country, but they're moving all those resources to the semiconductor industry, towards engineering, towards physics, towards like the hard sciences that really, if you look historically, physics and hard sciences are what really actually impel real change, real technological innovation. And it seems that they're trying to shift their focus into that world. And that is the same type of mobilization you saw, not to sound like a warmonger here, and that's not really my, my take, but it is the same type of mobilization that you saw in fascist regimes in the 1930s that you saw the, you know, the Nazi economy doing, where they're really mobilizing for surveillance, technology, AI, the ability to control their population and the, their ability to have a stronger, more robust military, better energy utilization, all of these things that are important, like that we are, honestly, we could be taking a page from their book in the sense of what we decide to value, because we are right now valuing kind of vapid consumer internet companies that don't actually necessarily provide real value beyond the profits that they confer to our equity market. So that I thought was really interesting divergence that we're seeing between what we're doing here in the U.S., which is really pushing this investor class, pushing people to just push up market values of public companies as a way of generating wealth. Whereas China's saying, we don't care. We don't care if this destroys our equity market for the short term. We're thinking of this long game and we're thinking a very different game. All right, Bitcoiners, I want to tell you about our newest sponsor. This show is brought to you by Ledin.io. I have been super, super impressed with the guys over at Ledin. I've actually known the co-founders, Adam and Mauricio, for a very long time. I've had the pleasure to watch them build Ledin up from a tiny, tiny startup to now a super impressive institutional grade Bitcoin and crypto lender. Y'all, I'm so impressed with these guys. They are offering some of the best rates out there. I don't think anyone even comes close to touching them. You can get 6.1% APY on your first two Bitcoin that you deposit into Ledin interest accounts, and you can get 8.5% US on USDC deposits. I mean, I know all the competitors. They're not even close. If you're going to put your crypto and your Bitcoin into an interest account, Ledin is by far the best. And on top of that, like I said, these guys are hardcore Bitcoiners and they know the products and the services that Bitcoiners want and appreciate. They come up with B2X. It allows you to put your Bitcoin in, they leverage it up, and you can, with one click of the mouse, get twice the exposure to Bitcoin. So if you're super bullish, Ledin has you covered with a super, super easy way to get leverage with B2X. And then on top of that, they know that Bitcoiners care about your reserves. They know that Bitcoiners don't like under-reserved and not full-reserved financial institutions. So they are pushing the frontier in transparency in the digital asset lending space. And they are the first digital asset lender to do a full proof of reserves and proof of attestation through a Mariano LLC, a public accounting firm. So the letting guys, they know what Bitcoiners like. They are legit. I encourage you guys to check them out. Do your own research and go to ledin.io, that is L-E-D-N.io, and learn more. 
Bitcoiners, I want to tell you about the Deep Dive. The Deep Dive is Bitcoin Magazine's premium market intelligence newsletter. This is a no-fluff, hard-hitting, incredible newsletter going deep into the market, helping you understand what's happening with derivatives, what's happening on-chain, what's happening in macro, what's happening with the narrative, and what's happening with the tech. My man Dylan LeClaire is an absolute savant. He is making his name known in the Bitcoin community, getting shout outs left and right, getting on podcasts left and right. And him and his team are bringing you everything that you need to know about Bitcoin. You don't even have to be on Bitcoin Twitter. You can ignore every other newsletter. This is the newsletter to rule them all. Go over to members.bitcoinmagazine.com. Sign up today. And if you use promo code MACRO, you get a full month for free. You have nothing to lose. What are you waiting for? Sign up. See the incredible work that Dylan and his team are putting out. And if you don't like it, just unsubscribe. You don't pay a dime. But if you do, you know, it's going to be well worth the sats in investment in understanding Bitcoin and gaining the confidence to continue to invest in Bitcoin and making the right moves around Bitcoin. And it's going to be well worth every single Satoshi. Uh, again, can't recommend it enough. That is members.bitcoinmagazine.com, promo code MACRO. Do it today. I want to send it to Ansel because Ansel, you spend a lot of time analyzing China. Yeah. You know, to some degree, I kind of agree with Aaron that, okay, maybe there is this is long-term thinking, but to another degree, I'm like, all right, well, this is top-down to control shooting itself in the foot. You know, you didn't mention them kicking out the miners and potentially removing their leverage over Bitcoin, which is an adversary of their centralization. But I'm going to send it to you, Ansel. Yeah, I just want to tie these two topics together. The first one, we talked about the decentralization versus centralization. And we talked a lot about it internally into a country, but there's also going to be global decentralization. And we could call that deglobalization, right? So you're going to, you see all these supply chain issues, supply chains are going to shrink. And when China has come up on globalization, so as the world deglobalizes and people move away from relying on China for a lot of these middle value add tasks that they were so dominant in, I think that China is going to have a really hard time. So I wanted to just tie that together, but I'm interested to see what Greg has to say. Well, yeah, what a heck of a cool conversation. So let's start with Aaron, when you said bring CDS in, credit default swaps, how about we just bring credit in? So I, I was really lucky to sit beside Lynn Alden in New Hampshire. I agree that, you know, what a phenomenal mind. And, you know, you mentioned things about the credit society and, and, and that's what capitalism is, is a credit society. It has its flaws, but let's assume that capital, the capitalist system is the best system or is the worst system. I think Margaret Thatcher said that, didn't she, or someone? Capitalism is the worst form of governance, except for all the other forms. So let's assume that capitalist is the best solution. And that's where China has a problem. So taking a credit angle to this, and this is very apparent to me when I examine what's happening with their Evergrande bonds, the high yield, which is relatively new in the communist capital system, they have a high yield debt market. It's dominated by real estate developers, but they don't even have a class of investor that buys the debt of high yield companies when that debt gets distressed. So what you're seeing is an all out flush in the high yield market 
on Evergrande bonds. And it's even, I was reading in the Bear Traps report today, the difference between the dollar denominated debt, Evergrande dollar denominated debt versus the local currency debt, the Chinese debt. The, the dollar denominated debt is stabilizing at, at very distressed levels, but at least it's stabilizing, whereas the local currency debt is still falling off a cliff. It indicates a immaturity in the capital markets. And, you know, the US definitely has the deepest capital markets in the world. Call it lucky enough, or I was in a chair where I was trying to help develop the high yield market in Canada, bring new Canadian issuers in Canadian dollars to Canada. Invariably, if those Canadian dollars issuers got into trouble, the buyer of last resort lived across the border. Okay. And a U.S. buyer buying Canadian denominated debt is, is not that big. I, but I would imagine that a U.S. credit buyer of one denominated debt is a lot more difficult to find. So that's an example of the credit markets being different. And it's tough to square that circle, right? You know, you need to develop capital markets, but capital markets are capitalism versus communism, which everyone's out is, oh my God, the government's going to come in and rescue Evergrande. That's just what everyone's saying. And if that's a communist solution, the problem we have in North America or in the developed West is, you know, we're so used to socializing our losses as well, that our system has gone from being pure capitalism where let it fail, let it fail to we can't let it fail. We got to socialize these losses and continue to kick the can down the road. So, I mean, there's a very inherent cultural difference between the two markets. I remember a quote somewhere where someone said to a very senior Chinese official, can you comment on the success of capitalism over the last 300 years? And he said, no, it's too early. Okay, well, if that's the way they think about it, you know, they go in 300 year cycles or something like that. Okay, that's good. But remember what the difference is there. And then so tying this all up with this technology bent, I'm going to quote, and I think I'm right here. If it's not Peter Thiel, it was some other quite smart person. He goes, artificial intelligence or AI is communism because AI allows you to know more about your citizen than the citizen knows about himself or herself. And that's a pretty interesting concept, right? So, you know, we got all these different things coming. I like your, your all centralized systems fail argument, Aaron. But then the capitalist system, we're, we're at a point of maximum stress right now. You know, our debt spiral is done. Like there is no going back from this debt spiral. We are in it forever. The question is, how long can we survive in it before it fails as well? Because fiat systems all fail as well. I mean, this is sort of neat pushing right towards your final conclusion or your final axiom. If all centralized systems fail and all fiat systems fail, well, what is Bitcoin? Bitcoin is decentralized and it's the anti-fiat. Okay, so this is over. Let's just wrap it up. There it is. Bitcoin solves everything, right? It solves the decentralized or the centralization problem. It solves the fiat problem. But I'll just end by saying this again. Sitting for me as a Canadian in Bretton Woods last week was eye-opening in terms of how many people actually believe that in the next five years, China will attack Taiwan and therein the U.S. will be forced into a confrontation with China. It was in today's Bear Traps report again, where a CIO of a New York fund said, imagine if you're the Chinese looking at how Biden responded to the Afghanistan situation. 
do you attack Taiwan sooner or later based on the perceived weakening of the American superpower? And I don't know, and I don't want to know because this actually really scares me. So the good thing is I believe that Bitcoin can solve a lot of this, that miners getting kicked out of China is an opportunity that I believe the West needs to embrace. And you guys may or may not be aware, a lot of the Bitcoin Twitter community was aware of this young man called Jason Lowry, who uh, he was a US Space Force kid that came out. So he's an MIT grad. If I'm not mistaken, perhaps he's still at MIT working for the U.S. Space Force. And he was on LinkedIn and somehow he tagged me, Preston Pish, and I think Max Kaiser. And so I got dragged into it. I read his thesis. He wants to write a thesis about how Bitcoin actually is a better war deterrent than nuclear weapons. And I love this thing. And I begged the kid to come onto Twitter and he comes onto Twitter like a bull in a China shop of, you know, and you got to remember that these guys are trained to think force, like they're trained. These are military cadets that are trained that this is how you win wars. And he came onto Twitter and the poor kid was shredded, you know, six ways till Sunday. And, and by the way, I'm in touch with him on a personal level. He has not given up. Bitcoin Twitter. This kid is coming back. He's coming back hard. Okay. So you fucking knuckleheads that think you won this thing because, oh, you've knocked down a horrible military person. No, 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 no. Then I'm not defending one way or the other. I'm just <laughs> telling you, all right. This is why young, strong, forceful men and women is what gives me comfort that there is a solution for this. He doesn't want war. I don't want war. I don't think anybody in their right mind wants war. But Boy, the temperature in that room at Bretton Woods was pretty heated the first half of the first day. And I said, gosh, what did I learn? I learned that the U.S. has 13 aircraft carrier battle groups. I learned that the U.S. military uses one million barrels of oil a day. All these things are pretty cool, except that's not why I went to Bretton Woods, right? I didn't go there to learn about the war posturing and everything. So you said warmongering. I think if, if I'm not mistaken, Aaron, you used that. I'm not a warmonger either. But man, oh man, if that temperature is turned up, we better be talking about this because like Jordan Peterson said, Nazi Germany, you may think you would have been the person to call out the Nazi German, but you don't. It sort of chips away at you and you accept all this stuff just because society accepts it. And then if you think you were going to be brave enough to call it out, you wouldn't have. Don't for one minute fool yourself, your brain to think that you would have been that person to stand up against the state. This is Jordan Peterson talking way smarter than me, but I sort of believe it. I joked. I made a few comments on stage and I said, I better run for the border here. I'm not sure I'm going to get back into my country. You know what I mean? So this is dangerous times that we're at, but I'm also an optimist because Bitcoin can solve a lot of this. So you might be a bull in a China shop, Jason Lowry and, and Jeff Booth and I have a pretty cool conversation going with him. Okay. Everyone is allowed to have an opinion and talk about these various things, but please let's be honest. There is some posturing and war posturing going on in the world right now. That's human nature. So yeah, don't be afraid to discuss it and don't be afraid to call out the strengths and weaknesses of each particular structure, centralized versus decentralized communism versus capitalism. Let's talk about it people, because if you don't talk about it, all of a sudden you could be in a position where it's too late to talk. And all of a sudden there's military conflict going on. I think this is a great place to transition to talking about the US a little bit. 
Aaron, you you laid the groundwork a little bit with your initial kind of introduction around like the financialization, the investor class, and like this way of like kind of centralizing the U.S. economy. To some degree, it's like you're an investor and you're keeping up with inflation to some degree, or you're not, and you're kind of the second class that's just getting wrecked on fiat. With the U.S., we laid out a lot of kind of notes here, but do you want to like outline specifically what you see happening with the U.S. and then we can kind of dive into maybe the Taiwan conflict? I know that China was posturing and they were doing military drills and Navy drills near Taiwan. Obviously, Afghanistan is a relevant topic. And of course, Bitcoin is just this tiny network, less than a trillion dollars uh, that's making itself relevant, you know, amongst the chaos. So a lot to talk about here, but I'll stop rambling, pass it back to you, Aaron. Let's talk about the U.S. more specifically and how you see the U.S.'s trend in centralization. Yeah. Yeah. And again, like these are all such big complex subjects it's hard to kind of get our heads wrapped around in just one conversation greg i think just touched along so many important points i think the us's biggest problem right now is that we're playing china's game because china they're comfortable in a world of centralization where where you're ratcheting up centralization efforts as a means of either geopolitical control as you said there's centralization and decentralization as you, you mentioned on an internal domestic level within a nation state, and then on the global stage as well. They've been playing this game for many years. We haven't, but we're kind of being forced into this game. And that gets to, you know, with CK, what you're pointing out about this development of the nation state as an investor class. And so we're basically, our fiat system is forcing us into a dominion of centralizing. And I would be hard pressed to call our current economy capitalist in the sense that I think most people would like to call it. So I don't think our system is that anymore. We're certainly not a communist system. I do think we are socializing our system via capitalism, though. And that, you know, you mentioned, Greg, before that AI is communism. And and I think you were paraphrasing maybe Peter Thiel or someone else in Silicon Valley, perhaps. But I would also say that passive investing is communism. And I don't take credit for that thought process either. There's There's a gentleman who's a quantitative analyst at a firm called Bernstein that you probably know, Greg, I think his name is Ignacio Brendan Fraser. But basically his thesis is that, you know, as passive investing has, has really become ubiquitous here in the U.S. And when I mean by that, I'm talking about ETFs, mass investor class being implemented through an easier process. Think of like passive investing, you know, from a technology perspective, like a UX. What made mobile phones so ubiquitous and so amazing and usable is that everyone could use them. The UX experience that Apple generated in 2007 was just bar none. And what passive investing has done is it's simplified the process. It's made it easier for all people to invest. It's reduced the cost, the friction costs, the rent, the middleman extraction, and it's done it all in a really palatable user experience. And that's only improving. That's only going in one direction. And we see with Robinhood. Robinhood, who just recently had their IPO, also announced, I think it was like a week ago, that they're going to start allowing people to invest their loose change, I believe is what they called it, or their pocket change back into equities. I mean, we're talking about micro investing in equities. And what's interesting about blockchains and Bitcoin, and as we're seeing in the Lightning node, Lightning Network, with applications such as Finks, is that micropayments are a great tool, actually. But when they're being used 
as a means to speculate and as a means to protect against inflation, the uh, ease of, of driving excess capital into that form of investment rather than investing in new capital, rather than creating new entrepreneurs to accumulate new capital. It's all being plowed into exist, an existing stock of capital. If you pull up a chart of like you know market cap to GDP of the equity market, it's at all-time highs. If you pull up new capital investment relative to nominal GDP, it's at all-time lows. I mean, I could pull up tons of charts. If you pull up the generational acceptance of socialism versus capitalism, it has progressively become more amenable from the silent generation to the boomer generation to Gen X to millennials. Like it is a progression of increasing comfort with capitalism and what's, I mean, with, with socialism. And what's so interesting about that is even the boomer generation was more open to socialism than capitalism relative to the silent generation or great generation. And this is a generation that has benefited beyond any generation ever from the formation of capital markets. And that gets back to your point before, Greg, about, you know, we have such a more robust capital market system than China. They cannot compete with us. They're doing efforts. They have shown at times in the past, in the past decade, a desire to build that capital market system and to attract new capital. But I think it's just very difficult with, with you have essentially an authoritarian ruler in place for Western investors to really gain the comfort needed when that can just, you know, they can slip the, the rug underneath you at any moment as they've done with Baba, as they've done with DD, as they've done with, and then with Evergrande, we don't know what they're going to do. They may bail them out, but force creditors to take a huge haircut I mean, there's just no... Add, and this is important. Sorry to jump in. You know, I'll stop talking. It, it starts with the court system, though, right? A distressed debt investor, I once heard at a conference I was at, he goes, we need to be just as comfortable in the courtroom as we are on the trading floor. Because it, ultimately, it comes down to your ability to argue you are restructuring in, in a court-appointed ap- process. Does that work in communism? You know, if I'm a distressed debt investor going overseas to China... You don't trust that. Like if you you do the Canadian court system, there are subtle differences between the Canadian court system and the US, but nowhere near like China. So yeah, back to you, you can't impose something like that. It develops over a long period of time. The, The rule of law in the US is way more powerful than the rule of law in China. Yeah. And so if I were China and you basically forced your biggest competitor to compete on the grounds of centralization as as being the last man standing will be the one who best centralizes in this kind of quickly devolving system. And fiat is forcing us as a capitalist system to kind of play by their rules. You made a great analogy with what's going on in Afghanistan. I mean, what did the Taliban do? And and you also tied this in with what they might look to do in Taiwan. Do you attack now or do you wait until your opponent is weaker? And again, I'm not a military expert, but I'm an investor and I think about game theory and I think about the path of least resistance. You know, my mentor in investing was a guy by the name of Marty Zweig, who is kind of a renowned investor in the 1980s and 1990s, like kind of a a pioneer. Love him. Love him. Yeah. And he was my boss. And he always told us, don't fight the Fed. That, of course, has only gotten more true over time. But it's an axiom that is so simple and it just adheres to this one rule, which is the path of least resistance is the most likely outcome. And when you're an investor, you're dealing in probabilities and you're dealing with risk reward. So I just feel like the, the path of least resistance for China 
is not to try to compete at our game, which is capitalism and which is a financialized system, but to let that system unravel. As we talked about, fiat systems kind of inevitably go through these debt cycles. Guys like Dahlia have really done a great job of articulating the kind of macro debt cycle. So I don't need to be redundant with that. But if if fiat systems inevitably fail, and if China is aware of that, then why should China even try to develop? That would be, I guess, my response to the comment that that China's capital markets aren't as developed. They might say, so what? Like, we're not going to win that game. So we'll let the U.S. implode. And when they've pulled out like they did with Afghanistan, when, when the last soldier has left, that's when we go and we take over. So the Taliban, for example, they knew they couldn't really beat us, but they waited us out. Correct. And that's why this takes back to Bitcoin and why Bitcoin is so incredibly powerful. When I went down my rabbit hole in Bitcoin, the two driving forces that stuck out to me as just completely dominant and unlike anything seen in any other asset that I've ever looked at is the degree of which is decentralized and it done so in a secure way where there's an actual real world cost associated with that. Getting back to your Mark Lowry guy, there is a kinetic energy. There is, you know, so if he thinks of it in terms of violence, there's a kinetic energy that goes into securing Bitcoin. I personally don't believe in that notion of, of it being a system of violence, though I think we're talking semantics a little bit here. And I think 100% semantics. Bitcoiners, I am so excited to tell you about the Bitcoin 2022 conference. You guys, Bitcoin 2021 was absolutely a smash hit success. It was over 13,000 Bitcoiners coming together, breaking the barriers on who can come together and celebrate freedom, celebrate Bitcoin, and the energy was absolutely electric. Unfortunately, it was just oversubscribed. There's just people flowing out everywhere. And this year we are learning, we are making the conference bigger and better. We are moving over to the Miami Beach Convention Center, and we are going to be throwing a massive four-day festival for Bitcoin, celebrating Bitcoin, bringing together the greatest minds in Bitcoin and the greatest businesses in Bitcoin. And lastly, the culture of Bitcoin all together. We have a four-day extravaganza planned for you guys for Bitcoin 2022. Uh, Day one is going to be industry day. It is a day where you can buy a special ticket in order to Uh, just mingle and make business deals happen. Day two and three is going to be a full-blown Bitcoin conference. This is our main conference. This is going to be on April 7th and 8th. And then lastly, we have the Sound Music Festival day four. Imagine going to Coachella, but for Bitcoin. There's going to be very few talks. It's going to be all about the culture of Bitcoin. It's going to be all about hanging with your fellow plebs. It is going to be an absolutely amazing time. There's going to be Bitcoin musicians, Bitcoin artists, and all your favorite Bitcoiners and just an amazing environment to party and just see it all, soak it all in, and to get people to realize that a Bitcoin world, a world filled with Bitcoin people doing Bitcoin things is the world that they want to live in. That's what Bitcoin 2022 is all about. That is what the Bitcoin conference is all about. That's what Bitcoin magazine is all about. So it is going to be a celebration of Bitcoin, the Bitcoiners, and this amazing movement that is going to make the world a better place. Go to b.tc forward slash conference. Learn more about the Bitcoin conference. Learn more about all the amazing things that are happening in Miami around the Bitcoin conference and buy your tickets. And guess what? If you buy your bit tickets with Bitcoin, you save $100 on all the tickets and $1,000 on the whale pass. So if you want the VIP pass, the, the big kahuna, if you buy with Bitcoin, you save 
$1,000. That's a lot of sats. So go and do it right now today. Don't wait. Prices are only going up. This is going to be a can't miss event. Bitcoiners, let's take a break from the content. And I want to tell you about Coolbix. Coolbix is an awesome Bitcoin hardware wallet that has been around for a really long time. They are building an amazing Bitcoin wallet called the Cool Wallet Pro. The Cool Wallet Pro is state-of-the-art Bitcoin hardware wallet technology. Its form factor is like a credit card. You can put it into your wallet and it is designed to go with you on the go. So that way, even when you're on the go, you can have the benefit of a two-factor uh, hardware wallet design when you're trying to spend your Bitcoin. So you can have your Bitcoin uh, wallet uh, UX on your phone and make it really easy to scan, decide what you want to do. But then you sign with a cool X, which is in your back pocket. It is tamper-proof. It is waterproof. It is flexible. It has an awesome secure element in it. And it is a really awesome way in order to have some more flexibility, yet security when you're taking your Bitcoin on the go. I personally am a fan of, you know, this idea of making Bitcoin into a medium of exchange and making it into something that people use. I know it's going to take time, but they are working on the UX for making that possible in as secure a way possible. So uh, have some peace of mind. Check out the Cool Wallet Pro from Coolbix. Uh, and yeah, thank you to them for sponsoring this podcast. I want to dive in here and talk about how does Bitcoin play into this this conflict, right? We have three people that have really been thinking about there is this kind of impending release of something, right? Whether it's like markets or war, or there's going to be some sort of like restructuring or something. We think Bitcoin is going to be a big part of that. We think Bitcoin could be an alternative, a backstop, a hedge, whatever. There's a lot of different degrees to where does Bitcoin fit in, but we're even articulating just the latest kind of conflict that we're speculating on, which is, you know, Taiwan, they, China has taken Hong Kong already and, you know, they've been posturing with Taiwan. I want to go to Ansel. Ansel was in the military, thinks a lot about China, thinks a lot about Bitcoin. What's kind of your take on the conversation so far? U.S. power versus Chinese power and, and, and Bitcoin kind of coming to a head. Well, yeah, I was in the, in the Air Force for 10 years, did a lot of mission planning, a lot of deployments. So I'm familiar with the world that this Jason guy is coming from, not the Space Force, but at least his maybe line of thinking. My thoughts on Bitcoin and how it pertains to this conversation about decentralization versus centralization. Like I said, that I personally think about deglobalization the most. As a form of decentralization, I think that will be first. I think nation states will decouple from each other, supply chains will decouple, and then later on nation states maybe internally will get more decentralized. But as the world is completely entangled like this, yeah, the first step is going to be decoupling all of these different economies. Uh, that's how I see the decentralization debate. I wanted to say something too about the war talk. War talk actually drives populations together. If everybody thinks that, oh, there's a coming cold war, there's a coming hot war over Taiwan. Like I said, when the raiders come, everyone rushes into the, the keep. It's going to be the same sort of thing with a global World War III type talk is going to be people are going to let the governments centralize. 
they're going to let the governments get more draconian, more authoritarian. So I can see maybe that's in the short term as the international order is kind of decentralizing the individual countries centralize more. And to Greg's point about the U.S. constitutional freedoms and and other things like that, I see the rule of law being the strongest in the United States. So I wouldn't want to be in some of these places that are going to see more nationalization, more populism, more centralization in local or in the, the national governments without a very strong rule of law. So that's one reason why I'm much more, I'm not necessarily bullish the US, but I'm neutral to bullish where I'm bearish on China and I'm bearish on some of these other economies that are going to lose from deglobalization. You better be bullish the US, okay? Because there's no one else that can win this, all right? Like Canada isn't going to win this. I'm afraid that we don't even matter. And we got a weak ass prime minister anyway. So at the end of the day, the line that sticks with me is what Aaron said, passive investing is communism. That's unbelievably profound. And what is passive investing? That is centralization. That's not paying an active manager to decentralize his thinking. You know, Western Union, I looked up who the largest owners of Western Union are because I'm involved in the El Salvador experiment quite deeply, to be honest. I was on a podcast with him. I gave a keynote speech to a group of merchants in El Salvador just last Thursday night. It's a beautiful experiment. And why is El Salvador doing this again? Quite simply because remittances from the US back to El Salvador account for about 20% of their gross domestic product. And Western Union, by the time it gets from the US back to the homeland, takes about a 20% fee. So 20% of 20% means that El Salvador can increase their GDP by 4% by circumventing the centralization of the Western Union process. Okay, who's the largest owner of Western Union? Vanguard and BlackRock. What are Vanguard and BlackRock? They're passive investors in the index product. What a bunch of knuckleheads, eh? This business is gone. I said at Bretton Woods, if I had a pocket short, I'd be shorting the crap out of Western Union. It's just a simple trade from a hedge fund manager. And I might be wrong, but that stock has not gone up in five years. And the only reason it has, it keeps its value is because it's got a dividend yield. What a horse and donkey business, okay? You're, you're gone, Western Union. But is anybody at BlackRock, Larry Finkel, well, it's got to be ESG friendly, I think, right? Because, you know, that's the way. These guys are ruining capitalism. So, yes, I'm all for active investment managers, Ray Dalio's, okay, the hedge funds. The ability to short something is absolutely capitalism. You may think it's wrong, but no, no, no. It goes and weeds out all these communist types of thinkers. So beautiful way to describe it. And I'll just summarize it by this. We're at our hour. Indexes are benchmarks. Okay. And along only investment manager that is short something like in theory, they're short because they're not at their index weighting. Have you ever heard like Stephanie, somebody's talking on CNBC when she's managing money and she's like, well, you know, I'm short, uh, you know, I'm underweight that in my basket. So I'm underweight the index. So therefore I'm short. Well, that's really brave. Wow. You are one heck of a hell of a risk manager because you're not at your index weighting. We got to change this whole psychology. And I would definitely love to use that line, Aaron, if you allow me to steal it. Passive investing is communism. I'm going out with it right now. Okay. And I'll, I'll hat tip you on it. 
and you get all the hate mail. Okay. But that's what it is. The hilarious thing about that is that Bitcoin absolutely benefits from the passive stacking, dollar cost averaging, saving in Bitcoin. No, aspect. no, 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 <laughs> full no, full stop. Bitcoin does not appear in any benchmark index. Okay. If not you yet. are stacking Bitcoin as a professional money manager, you are absolutely an active manager. Okay. 100% yeah. full stop. I think we're talking about something different. I'm just saying, you are. In you're general, at the like, level. From a dynamics perspective, Friar Hass, Hass McCooks talked about this before, but like this global infrastructure and the, the monetary aspects of it can be supported globally from passive investors. And those yeah. passive investors can maintain the price. So I don't know, but I'm, I'm going to interject I'll, with, I'll, with, what, with yeah, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll pass it to Aaron. Semantics here. Yes, what you're referring to is using technology to create a system that takes human emotion out of the equation of investing, but you are still actively allocating your capital. You are deciding to actively allocate it towards Bitcoin. You are just picking a passive way in which to do that so that you don't yeah. get caught into the volatility of, of all For, the- just Just forget everything I said, but I do think that it is interesting to hear this anti-ETF talk because like, I entered Bitcoin through personal finance and like the personal finance like, community is like, all about ETFs, you know, do all these things like within the existing system to get personal freedom. But it's just interesting. They just hear the negative talks on that. I know we got to go. That one is different. That's not an ETF. That's an ETF with a single asset. These other things are an ETF with 500 assets, right? They are basically well, S&P, the S&P 500, 500. It's like the S&P 500 is the yeah. cornerstone of that. That's right. You know, and it's got low fees and therefore all the big pension funds go into the passive ones because the fees are lower. I've dealt with it. It's it's like selling Volkswagens. You try and sell Porsches to Volkswagen buyers. They don't buy it. They're the ones that are going to get the worst returns, but that's just the way they are. They're stupid because they're fee driven. That's the first consideration they make. So uh, I think we're talking a lot about like the outcome of this financialization in the US, right? And like this kind of like decision making, which is centralizing, right? Inherently, even though it comes in many different forms, which kind of touches on the axioms. I know we are going a little bit over time, but I do want to kind of like wrap up this conversation for what it is. And, you know, maybe we, we come back to it, but Generally speaking, I want to have a last word about kind of like this battle, right? Between decentralization and centralization, what we kind of see going forward, just because more or less, I feel like that's that's going to be the next 10 years, right? Like I've been kind of like thinking about this idea of like we're living in clown world and clown world is kind of like the peak of the old world or, you know, in this world of peaks and valleys. And then we kind of descend into a valley and figure out how to get to a higher peak you know, once we kind of consolidate and figure things out. But in a macro perspective, I think that that comes down to like centralization, people coming together, people allowing centralization to happen. Maybe the US standing up to that better. We've seen that so far has been the case. You know, what's the difference between Australia and the US is kind of the rule of law. But what does the panel kind of think about this impending conflict and, you know, maybe what the next 10 years looks like? I want to try to like stick to maximum five minute answers from each person. Let's go over to Ansel and then we'll go to Aaron and then close it out with Greg. And then we can wrap this one up. But Ansel, like, let's talk about this impending conflict of centralization, decentralization, and all these kind of macro forces coming together. Oh, man. 
I think my last comment said my thoughts on this. I expect uh, deglobalization to be the manifestation first of decentralization, and then that to slowly work through the rest of society, I guess. I also believe in it's a pendulum. And I think in some areas, like we've talked about Germany in middle of last century, a couple times here today, I think that they are historically prone to things like that. So there's going to be some places in the planet that are less prone to communism and less prone to authoritarianism. And so that's an important factor as well. The U.S. has shown itself as being less prone to that. So I'm not as worried about it getting so far. And there will be a pendulum that will swing back the other way in the United States, in my opinion. So those are a few different topics that I think about actually quite a bit. All right. Let's go to Aaron. I mean, the bottom line is I'm no expert in China. I, I see what China is doing is interesting from the perspective of reallocation of, of resources and their their willingness to destroy public equity value to meet those ends. Whereas I don't think that is something that we could or would ever do here in the U.S. And to Ansel's point about this manifesting through deglobalization, that is exactly what China is reallocating these resources to accommodate. They're re- reallocating them into a, a self-sustained semiconductor industry, a self-sustained energy industry. So yes, you know the world is compartmentalizing. And those centralizing forces will only grow further. What I am an expert in, or what I'm a student of, I should say, because no one is no one is an expert of anything, honestly. And I've been an investor for 16 years in the hedge fund industry, in particular in the U.S. markets. And so that's where I can claim some area of expertise. And I would say that everything I have seen in the last 10 years, like I had become despondent about the equity, the U.S. markets years ago, well before I was really into Bitcoin. But until I discovered Bitcoin, I could not fathom a way out. I could not fathom a way out of this. And obviously, we've only gotten more and more extricated into this. And I wish I could have pulled up some of these charts that will be in the article and the essay that I published soon. You'll see all these charts anyway. But the bottom line is everything that I'm seeing about the trajectory of our capital system is one in which we are socializing the financial markets at the cost of new investment, at the cost of new capital. So we are not increasing our productive stock of capital, but we are increasingly creating a fragile system. And you have to remember that central authorities need fragility. They need something to fix, to validate their existence. And so the fragility inherent to a capital market system that is more and more divorced from its underlying value will require more negative real rates. The Fed will never extricate itself from quantitative easing, never. It is a joke. Nobody I know in this industry actually believes it will ever happen in a sustained basis. Everyone's talking about, when are they gonna taper? When is this gonna happen? Is it November, December? It doesn't matter. They will do it, they will try it, and it will be a disaster. And there will be a justification to bring it back at some point, whether that's six months later, two months later, the next day. I don't know, but we are on a path in one direction. And that path requires our capitalist economy that at one point was maybe somewhat decentralized to centralize further and further. And I honestly, I wish there was a way out, but I don't see it. And I think the only way out is Bitcoin. And again, to everyone's point about all of the scary conversations about an actual hot war or a cold war, which is, I mean, we're already in a cold war essentially, but hopefully this doesn't turn into a hot war. And hopefully, yes, Bitcoin can be a deterrent to that. 
I hesitate to use the word a violent deterrent, but it's certainly a deterrent of peace. And I think that's what we're all getting at. And I think, CK, you hit the nail on the head saying the next 10 years, that is why I'm so focused on this dichotomy, because the next 10 years, these are the themes. These are the themes that matter. Nothing else matters beyond that. As a human living on this planet or an investor. Force doesn't mean violence. Okay. So, you know, these are semantics. And when someone uses the word force, it doesn't always mean violence. Okay. So let's clear that one up. Well said, both of you guys. Ansel, huge fan of you and your service to the country and everything you guys do. And Aaron, you guys are the young guns. All right. And this is what gives me an old boomer some confidence because I will say, and I said this before, the boomer generation is the most selfish generation that has ever lived. And I'm a boomer. All right. We are soft, we are selfish, we are really, really pathetic, and we need the strength of the younger generation. So this includes guys that are on this panel here, as well as other guys. Uh, So first and foremost, Bitcoin is a technology, and technology changes the world. We know that if the communists don't want to invest in technology, they used to have the strongest navy in the world, right? You knew that in the 1400s? The Chinese were the strongest Navy in the world until they viewed that Navy as being an enemy of the state. So they stopped supporting their Navy. They could have controlled the world, but then they fell back into the dark ages. The same thing just happened with Bitcoin miners in China. This should be embraced by the West. We should be taking this and running with it. We have the chance now to convert natural resource energy into digital energy, the purest store of value man has ever created. You guys know that argument. I'm not going to teach anything that. But what I did learn, I think the Senate actions in the infrastructure bill on the subject of crypto or Bitcoin mining in particular was actually very positive. That's why the US system of democracy still works. It wasn't perfect. And a lot of people said, man, this is why it doesn't work. But show me something that works better. I mean, it was absolutely an opportunity to educate people. So I view it as being very positive. I want the U.S. to bring home digital foundries to create the Taiwan semiconductor that is so at risk right now. That's what really the U.S. cares about, right? They don't care about Taiwan. They care about Taiwan semiconductor that supplies over whatever percentage of the world's silicon chips. So... Let's just look on the positive side. I'm an, I, I certainly don't want to embrace war. I am an optimist. I'm a boomer. I apologize to my kids for being such a selfish son of a bitch. But thank you for the young kids that are going to, uh, to skate us out of this. And there's a lot of you guys. I, I continue to meet them. I'll tell you what's going on in Guatemala and El Salvador is absolutely heartwarming in terms of bringing entire countries onto the capitalist system rather than the failing fiat Ponzi. They can coexist, but your Bitcoin is your savings account and your US dollar fiat is your checking account. Do not save money in your checking account. Save value in your savings account, which is called Bitcoin. So thanks for having me. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, the folks over at IBEX are going to get on to the Bitcoin Magazine podcast. So I am excited to, uh, oh, they're to chat so with cool. them. And, they are so cool. And they, uh, they translated my paper into Spanish. Eh? You should see their app. You should see the functionality of their app and the, how the merchant can pick a weighting as to how much US dollars is, uh, is paid instantly transmitted into US dollars or if they keep some of it in, in Bitcoin. To the listeners, if this sounds interesting, 
subscribe to the Bitcoin Magazine podcast feed and the podcast will be coming soon with multiple members of the IBEX team. Jose, Jose and his team have, in his belief, five of the hundred lightning coders in the world, five of the top 100. Because why? Because there's not more than a hundred of them and they got five of them. And this is happening in a country that just onboarded 6 million citizens, of which 2 million of them don't have a bank account. And fuck off, Hanky, because you think that's a bad thing? John Hopkins degrees are going down in value because you're such a fucking loser, okay? And you are a boomer. Please post that. I love you guys. Oh, man, I love the fire. All right, well, hey, to all the listeners, I'm going to sign this one off. Follow FedWatch at Bitcoin Magazine. Follow myself at CK underscore Snarks. Follow Ansel at Ansel Lindner. I will put both of these gentlemen's handles in the show notes. But until then, tune in every single week. We'll be keeping these FedWatches going and maybe we'll get a part two, uh, talk about Europe and Africa with these guys. But this was an amazing conversation. So thank you guys so much for the time. And until next time, peace. Thank you, gents. Thanks, guys. It was awesome.